Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Art of GP Locoming podcast recorded live. And this will be going out both on through our podcast channel and also on YouTube. Just a few things. Uh, we've got Ellie here, our producer on standby, who's ready to take any questions you want to ask. So put any questions you've got into the chat and, and, and Ellie will help sort of compare those, uh, compare those at the end. Any links, um, any any recommendations that Nick's going to mention, we will put in, in the program's notes. So you don't have to write stuff down. We'll have clickable links on the YouTube and on the podcast. So you'll have all of that to play with. Before Nick starts with this, I'm going to just give a quick introduction. So Nick is a former research psychologist, now director of Family Mental Wealth and co-author of the textbook, the Oxford uh, textbook, uh, Eating Disorders, an Oxford Specialist Handbook from Oxford University Press, published last year. He has personal experience of eating disorders, having supported his own daughter, Lizzie, uh, who we'll be meeting later on, through recovery in her teenage years. Lizzie is now a GP with special interest in mental health and will be joining us at the end of the webinar. So, Nick, huge welcome. Thank you so much um, to you and, and Lizzie for, for sparing us the time. So, uh, welcome along to the National Association of Sessional GPs. I first want to just know a little bit more about, find out about your background um, and maybe introduce Lizzie's background, but also tell us what, uh, what, what, what um, mental wealth is and family mental wealth. Okay, well, I'll tell you a bit about myself, first of all. So my background is in psychology. I was heading towards a academic career as a research psychologist, uh, degree, PhD. But I started a couple of social enterprises and they kind of took over my life. So I've actually spent most of my life as a social entrepreneur, um, but always maintaining an interest uh, in psychology. Um, Lizzie, our daughter, uh, my wife and I worked together um, and uh, my wife was a chemistry teacher. Um, and uh, our daughter, Lizzie, as you said, Richard is a GP now, but when she was a teenager, she was severely ill with anorexia. Um, and so we kind of lived through that experience. Um, admission to hospital for a refeeding program, six months in an inpatient unit. Um, and she will always say that she's forever thankful for the uh, uh, the health professionals who helped her. But what really made a difference was the family-based self-help, what we were able to do helping her to help herself. And um, it was the early days of what's now been published as the new Maudsley method for skills-based caring uh, developed at King's, King's College London and South London and Maudsley NHS. And it's all about equipping parents with the knowledge and skills to facilitate evidence-based self-help, uh, which, you know, in the NICE guidelines, self-help is recommended as a first-line treatment. But if you're a young person, and particularly a young person with an eating disorder, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, Richard, who, who might be in denial, struggling uh, with it, actually struggling with the concept of recovery, then a self-help program on their own is just not viable. But uh, we were able to support Lizzie, help her. She got through medical school, uh, qualified as a doctor. Um, she was invited to speak at the Royal College of Psychiatrists at their international conference on eating disorders, giving the kind of view perspective both ways, having been through it and now being a doctor. Um, she uh, got a standing ovation. She was She's a very good speaker. Um, and afterwards, she was signed up to write a book. She wrote her 
autobiography, um, which was then serialized in a national newspaper. And it was all just going a bit wild, really. Um, and then the media picked it up and they were particularly interested in the father-daughter story because dads tend to remain cognitively detached, find it harder to engage uh, with uh, the children who are mentally unwell. Uh, the media always wanted to play also the doctor psychologist uh, angle, but I said, please don't call me a psychologist because I'm a former research psychologist. You know, people, I don't want people to think I'm a, a present clinical psychologist. Uh, anyway, we were just coming out of BBC Victoria Derbyshire show one day, and Lizzie turned to me in the way that daughters do to their dads and, and said, Dad, why don't we start a social enterprise to, um, uh, to help? Uh, families build their mental health and well-being. Um, and uh, despite the fact I'm co I was coming up to retirement, I'm well past retirement age now, um, I said, yeah, come on, let's do that. And uh, so that was the birth of family mental wealth. So a play on words of health and well-being. Um, and it's, uh, as it says on the tin, really, helping families to build their mental health and well-being. We work in collaboration with a whole bunch of academic uh, and clinical centers of excellence, um, uh, Southampton University, Sussex University, South London and Maudsley, NHS, Southern Health, NHS, the list goes on. Um, and um, But there are other touch points, of course, uh, for, for young people, and that is clinicians as well. So when Oxford University Press uh, invited us to put together the team to write the uh, uh, Oxford Specialist Handbook on Eating Disorders. We were delighted to do that. And then the e-learning as well. So what's so remarkable about all of this is I think if, if, if this were me and my family, I'm not sure we could have ever recovered from the, the, the such that it's such an Ill, awful illness. Uh, you know, I, I, I think we all know this all on this call because we've all so many of the people tuning in and, and, and here today, the, um, have, have, have experienced this through their families or, or, or with, with patients. And, but what you've done as a family is in, in, as a family unit is you've channeled that collectively into an incredible, um, um, onto enterprise and, and I've done so much good. And it's just, it's just, you know, you can't buy that. That's just wonderful. And we've now got this amazing resource of family mental wealth with, with books and, and e-learning and everything else that goes with it. Mm, yeah, thank you. I mean, truthfully, it was very difficult. <clears throat> uh, I mean, very devastating going through it. Um, but we held on to hope. And the evidence shows that hope for recovery is a very significant factor, protective factor in that recovery journey. And so part of it is that we really want to help other families, whether they're going through an eating disorder or anxiety or depression or OCD, self-harm, family mental wealth addresses all of those yeah. uh, issues, which are typically comorbid anyway. Um, uh, help those, those families to see that there is hope and particularly give them agency, the parent, give the parents agency that there's a lot that they can do. I'm often saying when I, I, I speak about this that the trouble is for us non-clinicians uh, is that we get the idea that mental health, like physical health, is something that we kind of largely hand over to the professionals. You know, if, if my son had an uh, extreme pain in his abdomen and I take him to the hospital and they say, well, look, you know, he's got appendicitis, what do I do? I don't 
go into the operating room. I, I sit in the waiting room drinking coffee while they do their thing. Um, and there's that kind of expectation. My son is developing anxiety or depression or an eating disorder. I will hand them over to the professionals. Um, but um, A, there aren't enough professionals for the number, uh, for the needs that there are. And, and B, if we're looking in terms of long-term solutions, we've got to help people develop that self-efficacy to be able to uh, uh, to um, build the knowledge and skills to for parents to address it with help their children and for the young people also to develop that self-efficacy that they can overcome this and indeed they can become out stronger uh, through it. And during Lizzie's uh, illness, and obviously we'll just ask you in a second a bit more, about more sort of general context of, of eating disorders and, and, and what the different types are and that kind of thing, because I know you've, you've covered that in the handbook. But, but during Lizzie's illness, during those, those years, did it, is that when you started to become aware of, of this, this route into sort of therapy and treatment um, um, and, and, and look, looking after? Um, sorry, it's going to tell my spine. That's my computer going turn you off um did, did, did that um is that did that sort of help ins inspire you um, um to then to do the work you're doing now obviously it came together when you when you left the victim yeah, I th show, but. yeah i think um see there weren't the tools available when we were going through right. it um but now the new Maudsley method for skills-based caring published uh, by Routledge, um, uh, written, uh, developed particularly by Professor Janet Treasure, who's a world-renowned authority on eating disorders. And, and she is co-author also of the Oxford University Press textbook with us. And in fact, I was talking with her this morning. So the the um, uh, this has been really helpful, but it wasn't really around in our day. And we had to right. kind of work our way through it. But now it is there, uh, and we realized also that it, this is not just skills that can help uh, families with a young person with an eating disorder, but they can also, the same skills are transferable to anxiety, depression, OCD, you know, most mental health conditions. I mean, not psychoses, mm. but, but uh, although there will be some skills that will be related if you've got a, a child with a psychosis, but... But, but most of those uh, mental health conditions, uh, there's a huge amount that parents can do. Um, and so we are passionate about helping them. Um, and But I think there's a big job for clinicians to do, if you don't mind me uh, giving a bit of advice please to do, clinicians, uh, of helping people to see that actually mental health is equally important as physical health but it is different and that actually there's a huge amount that they can do. It's kind of like, I describe it sometimes as back in the 1950s when I was born, uh, if you needed your house painted, you wouldn't ever think of buying a paintbrush and a pot of paint. You'd, you'd hire in painters and decorators because, you know, the professionals did it. Uh, and then if you go through the decades, you get the birth of DIY and it took a long time for DIY actually to really take off. And now that's now largely people's go-to response. I can do this myself. And I feel that we need to do that with mental health as well. Uh, that actually, although it's vitally important that one keeps in touch with the clinicians who can monitor, uh, monitor progress, be able to address crises, uh, looking out for risks, managing risks, um, 
there's a huge amount that uh, that families can do. And 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 in 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 the handbook, you where you talk about the the different types of of um, eating disorder. Can, can you a couple of things? Can you sort of give us like a quick five minute masterclass or maybe some deep diving, some really um, um, things that you, you think is important for us as GPs to be able to take away with us? I did. I did hear yeah. you've, you've also talked as well because your wife is also involved in this. And you're, I understand your wife has been brilliant at coining some fantastic um, oh, yes. phrases in the ABCDE of, of eating disorders. I, I, oh, love yes. that. I would love yeah. to know a bit more about that. Well, when we get to the video in a minute before Lizzie comes on, we'll show you're going to show a video which explains yes. that ABCDE. It's all about really, yeah, making things stick in their mind. I mean, the New Audsley method for skills-based caring developed by academics and clinicians has got the kind of names that you'd expect from academics and clinicians. It's got terms like uh, developing discrepancy and supporting self-efficacy. You know, it doesn't exactly ring in your ears. But yeah, my wife is wonderfully creative with things, making it down simple. So turning those into phrases uh, like um, uh, be curious, not furious. And questions like "be the anchor, not the captain," uh, phrases like "be the anchor, not the captain," uh, those kind of things that people can uh, can hook into. But in terms of eating disorders, yes, in the Oxford Specialist Handbook and in the e-learning that goes with it, so we've turned this also into this e-learning in five-minute, short, bite-sized learning uh, units. Uh, the we cover all of the different eating disorders. There are seven different eating disorders listed in the DSM-5 and ICD-11. Um, the ones most people will know about is anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. People are increasingly becoming aware of binge eating disorder, um, which wasn't recognized as a clinical diagnosis, you know, until the last few decades, um, but is in fact one of the most common uh, eating disorders and is very distressing and damaging to people's health. But then there are others uh, like ARFID, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, um, things like rumination disorder. And and then there are others that are not yet in the DSM-5 or ICD-11 and not, not recognized as clinical diagnoses, but are increasingly being recognized in clinical practice and research. So this is things like TIDE, type 1 diabetes with disordered eating, which is a combination of disordered eating and diabetes where people use changing, changing their uh, insulin dose uh, in a goal of, um, of losing weight. Um, and that can be particularly dangerous. Uh, or orthorexia, uh, which kind of evolves from clean eating, which doesn't kind of begin in the same psychopathological uh, uh, etiology, um, but often begins with, uh, I want to be fit, I want to be strong, I want to be healthy. So then starting to uh, restrict particular foods and then that becoming uh, pathological restriction that actually becomes unhealthy. Or another one that hasn't even got a clinical name at all, but the media, when they refer to it, call it drunkorexia, uh, which is a combination of alcohol abuse and food restriction. So food restriction to try and trying to lose weight and overwhelming drive to lose weight. But because of what's going on psychologically, self-medicating with alcohol and abusing alcohol, uh, and the combination of that, of course, can be particularly dangerous from both of those 
two things. So it really is important that clinicians understand the different range uh, of eating disorders. And particularly, you know, it's not just about weighing somebody uh, and, and looking them up on a BMI chart, um, uh, that people can have eating disorders at all sorts of weights, all sorts of different types. And understanding also, Richard, um, you know, some of these eating disorders are particularly secretive illnesses. Um, anorexia nervosa, particularly, um, is uh, what we call in psychology an egocentonic illness, that it has perceived benefits for the person. So they, there's these rules, and if I follow these rules, then I'll be safe and I'll be okay and I'll be in control. Perhaps in other aspects of their life, they haven't got control. And they think, I can control this. If I can control my my food intake and control my weight, then I will be uh, in control. Um, and the way that Lizzie describes it is that um, Anorexia is like having the worst bully from the playground living in your head, but paradoxically thinking that this bully is your friend, your only friend. And so therefore, there's a kind of a uh, not wanting to disclose, not wanting to recognize it, not wanting to admit to it. And, and people who are very ill with anorexia will use all sorts of strategies to try to hide what's going on because they don't want their friend anorexia to be taken away. So simple things for GPs to know about is things like, you know, when you're weighing somebody, if you're monitoring somebody who is severely ill with anorexia, perhaps they may have been hospitalized, may not, may be an outpatient uh, care. Um, and, uh, the, the specialists have asked you, um, well, it will be your nurse, practice nurse who will do it, to, um, to monitor their physical condition regularly, measuring their weight and blood pressure and uh, pulse. And being aware that people will use all sorts of strategies to falsify their weight. Water loading, drinking huge amounts of water before a weigh-in, even simple things like putting weights in their clothing. So inviting them to take off that coat Oh my goodness, that coat's very heavy, isn't it? You know, uh, and and so being aware of those kind of strategies that um, uh, that people will use and help them to see that actually, you know, anorexia is not their friend. The eating disorder is not their friend, uh, and they can be set free uh, from it. So, so not only uh, are people with anorexia keeping a secret, they're going even further and actually lying and defrauding people with it almost. Yes, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't blame them for it. If we understand what's going on yeah. in their mind, yeah. then we can uh, have a sympathy for them. But the yeah. key thing is to bring it out into the open, to support them, to help them to see that actually – this can be overcome. This can be treated. They can recover. And that's our key message, that, that you can recover. And, of course, different eating disorders have different types of things. So the, the a person with anorexia may be trying to keep it secret because they don't want it to be, to, they don't want uh, it to, this friend anorexia to be taken away. Someone with bulimia nervosa may keep it secret because they feel ashamed uh, about the, the the purging, so they may admit that they're purging, uh, may admit that they're vomiting, but not disclose 
why? Um, someone with binge eating disorder. I mean, interesting as you know, when you read the read the handbook and uh, see the uh, e-learning, uh, you'll see that that um, with binge eating disorder, patients are often very keen to engage with treatment which contrasts them with, uh, with anorexia um, and helping them see that it is possible there are uh, tools um, to the, that can help them to overcome this. As, I, I don't know, you, as a research psychologist and someone who's co-authored who's, who's these, these books and everything with these resources, as, as GP locums, we're often, it could be, it's the first time we've ever been in this practice. It could be the first time we've ever seen this patient and it could be the last time we've ever seen this patient. Oh, and sometimes we may not be necessarily aware of, 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 of uh, that on, ongoing story about the individual or the family. Are there things, do you know, that we can do during our consultation? Um, are, are there signs, are there symptoms, are there factors that we might be able to pick up on or somehow screen for when we're yep. talking to someone? Well, in a minute, when you show the clip, <laughs> um, then you'll see the A, B, C, D, E signs that are in the uh, eating, uh -huh. in the handbook and in the e-learning, and that'll be e explained to you. But I think also, and this may be difficult if you're a, a locum coming in and out and you don't get to know the family and so on and so forth, um, but understanding the risk factors that can precipitate uh, or well, predispose, precipitate and perpetuate an eating disorder um, can be very helpful to be aware of uh, that in that consultation. Um, there are, you know, the biopsychosocial model is very helpful here. There are biological uh, risk factors, certain genetic factors, um, certain things happening in puberty. Um, there are psychological risk factors, so personality traits like perfectionism uh, particularly increases the risk of developing an eating disorder. Psychological states like uh, body dissatisfaction increases the risk. And then social factors, so things like hobbies and professions, so um, things like you know ballet, uh, athletics, boxing, horse riding, particularly activities that have weight-based categories or where aesthetics is particularly important, um, they can uh, increase the risk. Um, and uh, other so social factors like bullying, uh, particularly if it's weight-based bullying. So in similar ways that you do, you know, for other illnesses where you're kind of looking at the risk factors for it, being aware of those risk factors can then, I think, feed into your mm. uh, history taking and examination uh, to understand, uh, understand the person. That's really helpful. Before we go into the video, then, and I see Lizzie's just joined us. Um, oh, yes, here's Lizzie. Yeah. No <laughs> picture of her yet. You'll be joining us in a sec. Um, yeah. But I just wanted to, in the press, we, we, and we talked about this just before we, we came on live, was about um, the, the national picture of, of the rise in eating disorders that we hear about in the press and the hugely stretched resources and waiting times going up and up and up. 
So, so just kind of, I guess, to summarise, so we as GPs, when we've got patients with eating disorders in our in in our surgery, whether they they've already been diagnosed or um, and maybe been managed by one of our colleagues, uh, the regular GPs in the practice, or we're or we're in, we're actually thinking we've got a diagnosis here. Um, what's our role? What, what's what would you what advice would you give us about our role here? What should we be thinking about? What should we what should we bring factoring in here? Um, that's a very good question. That's a kind of a GP question. <laughs> and so um, Lizzie's joined us and will come on after the video. Okay. Uh, if, I, if I can be a Rogerian psychotherapist for a minute and say, hold that thought. Uh, <laughs> so if, if we could just hold that, because Lizzie yeah. could kick off with that. What, what actually practically can you do, particularly if you're a, uh, a sessional uh, sessional GP. Um, I think what I would say personally, though, and from my understanding and experience of it, uh, is to understand that if a young person or any person of any age, because eating disorders can affect people at any age, uh, if a person comes and actually discloses that they've got an eating disorder, to recognize that it would have taken a huge amount of emotional energy to do that. Uh, and actually, particularly if it's something like anorexia, where they perceive it as their friend, if it's something like bulimia, where they're going to admit that they've been making themselves uh, vomit or using uh, laxatives or diuretics or other, uh, other types of uh, uh, medication, uh, or if they're experiencing binge eating disorder and they're going to admit that actually they buy binge food and then secretly eat it. Um, that takes a lot mm. to, to disclose that and to understand the person and the steps that they've taken, even just to get into the surgery and talk about it and to affirm them that they've done the right thing by disclosing it. And that is the first stage on a recovery journey. Uh, and uh, that recovery journey may take time, but there is hope for recovery. That's that's it's a really powerful observation. Yeah, no, no, that that that's wonderful. Um, what I'll do now is I'll, I'll we'll we'll start that video then, and then um, it takes three minutes, and then uh, we'll then we'll then uh, we'll ask uh, Lizzie to turn her camera on and, and say hi to Lizzie. So I'll, I'll, if I can I'll, just say this video yes. is a clip. This video is a clip from the e-learning. So the e-learning is in thirteen modules with five-minute bite-sized videos and this you're just going to see a clip from one of these videos but if you take the e-learning there's loads more like this uh it begins with professor janet treasure who's a world authority on the subject uh talking about the whole thing about how do you take a history um uh and uh, then lizzie will goes into uh, a b c d e lovely thanks right here we go Getting a collateral history from family and friends is very important. The individual themselves might not be able to report key symptoms because they are not aware of them or because they choose to keep them secret. Simply asking the patient to describe the symptoms will often not reveal the issue at all. So if you say, what's your problem? Uh, the characteristic answer of people with anorexia is nothing. I'm perfectly well. With other types of eating disorders, the shame associated with it might lead them to only tell part of the story, such as saying that they've been vomiting but not disclosing why. 
to say that the vomiting is self-induced. They might present with vomiting, but not indicate uh, what it's caused by. So, when taking a history and examining a patient, we need to take a broad approach. There's a range of diverse ways that this can impact on people. So we need to be aware of that and go through the different systems, the, the biological systems and the psychological and the social factors and sort of almost go through with a sort of checklist, but in a gentle way, have you noticed any of these? And so patients might not volunteer them, but when when they're allowed to open up, they will say, oh yes, I have got this. In the Oxford Specialist Handbook on Eating Disorders, we describe in detail an A, B, C, D, E approach, which can be helpful in taking a history, provided we use it as a broad guide for a conversation. A, absence. Are they absenting themselves from food-related activities? perhaps avoiding situations where they're expected to eat with other people, or going straight to the toilet after meals, or perhaps eating secretly on their own. B. Body. Are they obsessively worrying about the size or shape of their body, more than the general body dissatisfaction that many people experience? C. Control. Are they compulsively trying to be in control of food, perhaps seeking to determine the content and timing of meals, or pretending to have eaten what they've actually given or thrown away? Or are they out of control of food, perhaps experiencing an overwhelming desire to binge, maybe secretly on their own? D. Diet. Have they radically changed their diet? perhaps claiming not to like food which they previously enjoyed, or adopting restrictive food preferences, or developing a preference for food which is easy to purge. E. Exercise. Are they exercising excessively or obsessively? For me, when I developed anorexia as a teenager, one of the first signs was running every morning until I was completely exhausted. Right. Well, thank you very much for that video. That was really good. Um, and that chocolate cake looked particularly nice as well. Um, mental note. So um, thank you so much, Nick, for that. And now I'm delighted to know to introduce and also meet uh, Lizzie. Lizzie, thanks for coming along. Really good to meet you. And um, I hope your day's been going well so far. Yes, thank you for having me. Sorry I couldn't join earlier. Um, but excited to join for the end of the session. No, that's that's really good. So, so, so Nick, Dad has has given us a fantastic rundown of of, of the background to family mental wealth and to um, to eating disorders, etiology of eating disorders. Give us some some great top tips. Um, mm. And now we've got um, we've got some eighteen people uh, live now in 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 the lounge, as it were. And I think some might have asked some questions. Um, but um, Ellie, have we got any? questions ready to go for Lizzie now or do we want to give Lizzie a bit more time to, to, to maybe add, add anything more to, to what Nick's been talking about? Well you had a great question for Nick at the end of his um, when you were speaking to him and um, it'd be really nice to carry that over to, to Lizzie um, 
asking about um if I, I don't want to, I don't want to mangle your question, but no, you do, were, please do. I think you were asking about um, what what um, particularly sessional GPs um, need to know about eating disorders. Yeah, that's right. Now, thank you for reminding me, Ellie, because yes, as, as, as GP locums, as you know, we um, um, it might be the first time we've ever been to this practice. We won't know any background mm-hmm. necessarily at all, and it's the first time, possibly the last time, we're going to meet this patient. Sometimes mm-hmm. it might be obvious to us that they have an eating disorder. But sometimes it it might they might be might be hiding in plain sight, and it was just mm-hmm. if you've got any tips on how to pick though pick up any signs, any symptoms, any thing they might be hiding, how we could bring those out, any sort of screening questions we could ask, and I'll stop waving my hands and let you answer. Um, so I think, and sorry, I did I did hear some of my dad's reply earlier, but um, I didn't catch all of what he said. But I guess. Um, you know, we've developed at Family Mental Health the ABCDE um, sort of uh, criteria for recognising an eating disorder, as we discussed in the video. Um, and I guess just being aware of those sort of those sort of signs and symptoms people may be presenting with, be that overtly or covertly, that you know, family are saying, you know, they just don't want to join us for dinner anymore, or you know, I'm concerned about how anxious they get if they can't get to the gym in the evening, um, and just being aware of those and. You know, it's it's hard, isn't it? Because we've got to be aware of so many different things as doctors. Um, you know, what sign could be related to loads of different conditions. Um, but just having in the back of your mind, particularly the people who are prone to eating disorders or where there's a higher prevalence. So, you know, teenage and young people, especially post-pandemic, um, you know, just thinking when we're mentioning about diet or about weight, you know, how are they responding is there something that's just a bit off there? Do I need to do I need to probe a bit further? Um, and then I guess you know it's it must be so. I haven't worked as a, a locum GP, but it must be so hard being a locum. I think you know coming to a surgery and then then leaving. Um, but just being really mindful that actually if someone is presenting with an eating disorder and they've taken that step to come to the GP, um, you know like my dad said, it's taken a lot of guts to do that. Um, and just being mindful of how that's sort of handed over at the end at the end of your day, you know, highlighting it to, you know, to their name GP or the person they see regularly and saying, look, I'm just concerned that this young person or this adult may be developing, you know, an eating disorder. And this is what I found. Just want to, you know, just want to highlight that. Or, you know, I've sent these bloods off. Do you mind just, you know, following them up? Um, just making sure we don't lose that that motivation that they've had to see a GP and, um, you know, and to be able to provide them with the support that we can. No, that's fantastic. That's just 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 the sort of answer your dad, dad would have said, I'm sure. <laughs> um, no, that's lovely. So, Ellie, have we got any um, questions then from from our, our our guest today? Yeah, we've had some lovely, really interesting questions already, and with there's still um, room to take a few more if anybody wants to pop them in the chat. So, first of all, David Church has asked us um, that he he has observed himself that uh, eating disorders do seem to be. Um, increasing rapidly um, he's asked is there something that we are doing as parents or society or not doing that is might be leading to this increase in the eating disorders um, but I wonder as well whether you as a kind of rider to this whether you've got any advice for sessional GPs who are um, uh, working with worried parents parents who might be blaming themselves um, it's really hard with parents um, Parents often will feel a lot of guilt and blame themselves for their child being ill. So even raising that in itself 
is a really difficult conversation to have um, because what you don't want to do is you don't want to perpetuate that guilt and then, you know, cause some discord between you and the parents or alter their sort of ability to engage. Um, what I would say is there is, you know, because I had read the question in the chat, there is um, certainly things that we do in families. Um, there is evidence that there are sort of family dynamics that can increase the risk of um, eating disorders. So, um, you know, parental discords, so arguments, separation at home, having high expectation of children. You know, you need to get your all your A's and A stars at school. Um, comments and weights and um, sort of pressure about weight. So you you know remarking, you know, you've you've put on quite a lot of weight through puberty, or actually you've slimmed right down and you look great. Having those sorts of weight based comments can be unhelpful. And um, as can you know exposure to dieting behaviour in the in the home. Um, so seeing their mum constantly on a diet constantly buying diet food um will perpetuate that that need to you know to alter your food intake to to comply to society's sort of norms of how you should look and that can increase that risk what can we do it's tricky if someone's already developed an eating disorder i'm not sure addressing that's going to make any any positive benefit apart from um you know apart from potentially harming that that parent um but certainly there are things we can be aware of in parents um when they're bringing up young children so you know i'm very aware of it at the moment i've got a 13 month old and you know really trying not to put pressure on you know you need to eat everything on your plate if you don't eat everything on your plate then you can't have pudding you know instead of saying eat what you want fruits for pudding you'll always get pudding whether you eat dinner or not um, and trying to have that really positive sort of food relationship at home um that can be that can be really helpful um sorry i forgot the other bit about what can we do as gps supporting them no i think that's really helpful yeah i think the, the rider of the question was um how, any advice you would give to gps who might be working with a patient who's blaming a parent who's blaming themselves i guess then sort of working through with them their own sort of how they are mentally how's their mental health how are they coping because we know that especially you know janet treasure has done a lot of work on supporting families and i don't know if my dad might be able to comment a bit on this but um certainly looking after a child or a young person with an eating disorder can have a really negative effect on on someone's mental health and well-being cause you know significant amount of care or stress and and um you know difficulty for them so supporting them in that it's i think it's in the nice guidelines that it says that all parents should have an assessment of their own mental health needs so you know saying you know i'm aware you're my patient as well shall we take you let's book you in for another appointment let's have a chat about you you know this is about your daughter let's have a chat about you next time um and just being just being aware of that really interesting that's lovely thank nick, you nick did you want to come in there yeah i was saying it's brilliant what lizzie said i think the the key is to help people to see that parents are part of the solution they're a key part of the solution, but that doesn't mean that they're part of the problem. Um, and um, so therefore, empowering them to see what they can do. It isn't helpful to go back in a family history and say, oh, see how this led to this and that led to that. It's case, how can we move forward? What can the parents do to move forward? Now, at the same time, as Lizzie said, there is a job to do to educate parents much earlier in the journey in terms of uh, how they re relate, what they, what do we value about the person and trying not to say you look nice. You know, we could say that even with, a, you know, with the best will in the world. Oh, darling, you look nice. But that's giving the impression that looks are important. But 
instead saying these, I really love the way you're so inclusive, uh, or I, I I love the way that you think so deeply about things. Um, you know, finding other things to compliment them on, because um, as parents, we're always looking for things to compliment our our kids on because we want to find them doing something good because we're always finding them doing something bad and telling them off. So we want to find them doing something good, but complimenting them on things to do with their character, which are not to do with their body. Thank you. That's really, that, that's really useful. Um, thank you. Ellie, have we got any more questions? Yeah, we've got a couple more. So we've got um, a quick one from Smita. Is there any connection between celebrity, celebrities advocating diets and eating disorders? Um, I would say, I don't know if there's any evidence for it, but I undoubtedly suspect that there is evidence for that, yes. Certainly being surrounded by a diet culture, um, the, sort of, the pressure from society to fit the, what we say is the thin ideal, so the, that sort of ideal image of what you should look like, both you know, male and female in the, sort of in the celebrity sphere, in the in media. Um, so yeah, certainly being surrounded by that, but also having celebrities push that, um, yeah, I think undoubtedly will have a link. Um, it's hard when children and young people are so exposed through social media, through the internet, through TV. They're so exposed to all of these images. Um, and I'm not sure there's much we can do about that apart from, you know, recognising that as a risk factor and trying to support children and young people and how we respond to that, how we, you know, address our own feelings of ourselves in response to that. Thanks, Lily. Um, we've got a, a really good uh, one from Claire here that's had a thumbs up in the chat. Are there any um, red flags that are important to include in referrals to eating disorder services? I think it will depend on every sort of area will have their own local guidelines of, of referrals. Um, you know, and I think in some areas you have to refer through sort of the primary care liaison service, some places you can refer directly. So they'll all have their own um, referral criteria. Um, sorry, that's my dog in the background. Um, but um, red flags, certainly, I mean, all mental health red flags are sort of suicidality um, and risk of harm to themselves or others, certainly. Um, but I guess just thinking, particularly things like anorexia, um, the main risk, um, especially when someone's really unwell, is that sort of physical risk. Um, and so being aware of the need guidelines saying, you know, their BMI is this, or, you know, their, their most recent, um, you know, potassium result was, was X, Y, Z, we're treating this in the community, but please be aware of it. Um, and certainly that will flag it up, or hopefully it would flag it up as being, um, as being high risk. Can I can I just flag up also on there? That's very good, Lizzie. Lizzie referred to the Mead guidelines, uh, and if case you don't know this, there are new guidelines come out from the Royal College of Psychiatrists called Managing Medical Emergencies, Recognizing and Managing Medical Emergencies in Eating Disorders. Um, it's a huge, complex document. In the Eating Disorders book, we've simplified it down, and then in the Book bites. So if you uh, if you take the e-learning, you get uh, downloadable book bites that you can download and keep. Uh, and so one of the book bites I've just dug out here um, contains a summary of the Mead kind of red flags and amber flags. Those things to be particularly aware of. Um, and I think all GPs should have a copy of that uh, in their drawer um, to be aware uh, of those particular risks. Thanks, Nick. 
And I think we've got one more question, Ellie. And we have just got one more. Yeah, I'm keeping on time. Um, so Dr. Allison um, has asked whether um, obesity is an eating disorder and um, how to, if so, how to tactfully raise it in a GP consultation. So, um, so it's interesting. So Professor Janet Treasure uh, does quite a lot on this at the moment, or at least has spoken, at least to me, quite a lot about this um, with her concern about that. I think um, her view is that maybe there is, you know, something in, uh, should obesity be an eating disorder? Um, currently, it's not recognised as an eating disorder. However, what I would say is that, um, and Dad, please correct me if I'm wrong, I think the current... Um, sort of uh, numbers are around 30% of people who are obese or overweight actually have binge eating disorder. Um, so obesity in itself might not be an eating disorder, but it might be a symptom of an eating disorder. So, you know, just being sort of aware when we're thinking, talking to someone, you know, maybe about their hypertension or their OSA and talking about their weight and, um, you know, thinking actually how, what are they eating at home? What's their normal day? Um, you know, what's their, what do they normally eat in a day? Um, and what impact, because one of the main things about an eating disorder is the impact that their eating and their eating behavior has on their own life and functioning. Are they able to maintain friendships? Are they able to work? Are they able to live their life as they normally would? Or is their eating behavior? or the distress from it affecting that. Um, so being mindful of that. Um, often people um, with, um, with binge eating disorder will want to engage and will want, you know, their primary aim of, treat of accessing treatment will be to lose weight. Um, but actually enforcing that and saying, yeah, right, let's get you on a diet, let's get you, you know, it's <laughs> referred to XYZ, let's get, um, you know, let's think about losing that weight. Actually, the mainstay of treatment needs to be normalising their eating habits. And often weight loss will follow that, but that shouldn't be the primary aim of treatment. Thanks, Lizzie. That's just such sensible advice, isn't it? That's that's really interesting. Thank you for that. And and, and thank you everybody for your questions as well. They've been they've been so helpful. Um so so Nikki and, and, and Lizzie, um you've been so wonderful coming on today, telling us about uh, family mental wealth and about eating disorders, about the book, about the e-learning and, and Nick, we, we we've we've actually got Nick's given us a dis members members a discount. So the first hundred of you who sign up for the e-learning will get a fifty percent discount and that will be appearing on our um, mem membership uh, members only um, benefits page um, and as I said, said, said at the beginning um, all, all the links to everything we've talked about will be in the, in the notes for the podcast and the YouTube you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and to our um, podcast on Apple and Google and, and, and everywhere else um, thanks for coming along we, we hold these web these these webinars podcasts uh, on the first Thursday of every month at 1 p.m always welcome to come along um, and Nick on behalf and Lizzie on behalf of everybody and of course your 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 mum your wife as well who I know in the background as a does so much thank you so much for all the work you've been doing it's absolutely tremendous it's a fantastic um, um success story to hear about all the what what you as a family have done um for 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 people not just across the uk but across the world in in, in bringing these materials and resources together so thank you so much for 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 uh, appearing on our podcast and youtube video and we will hopefully see you again sometime in the future thank you very much <laughs> <laughs>